Our Father, we are reminded that you tell us in Psalm 55 to cast what you have given us upon you. That's an interesting statement because every guy in here is uh, working through different stuff and different fears and different issues and different complexities and different pressures. We, uh, we come to you because we really have nowhere else to go. Uh, we, we are told that the answer lies in uh, looking inside ourselves or the answer lies in a counselor or the answer lies in therapy or the answer lies in psychology, but the answer lies within you. You are the one who created us. You are the one who made us. And until we are connected with you through your son and until we are ready to listen to you and until we are broken before you oftentimes, uh, we are not going to learn the lessons that we need to learn. Uh, we get so self-absorbed and we get so, um, we get so frantic with what's going on that we lose perspective. And what do you say? You say to cast it all upon you. Um, you care for us. You know where we are. You know what we're thinking. You know what we are anxious about. And so we come to you. It's good for us to kneel and pray. Just the posture of kneeling is good for us because it's a posture of submission. It's an acknowledgement of who you are. It's an acknowledgement of your greatness. It's an acknowledgement that you are the only true God. You, you have told us to be still and to know that you are God. So with the different issues that are before us and around us, we lay them before you and we submit to you and we ask you to give us uh, hearts of understanding and hearts of obedience. Help us, Lord, to not fight you, but to submit to you. We think we know. We don't know. We don't know anything. You're working on so many different levels. And, and you're mindful of us and our immediate circumstances, but you are working for our good and for our benefit all the time. So help us to trust. Help us to believe what you have said to us. And help it, Lord, to uh, make a difference in our perspective and may it calm us and make us secure in who you are. You've given us a future and a hope. We pray these things in your name. Here's what we've been doing this semester. We've been doing our study on the giants. And uh, uh, the fact of the matter is, our premise is, if you desire to be used by God in any way, shape, or form, if you want your life to count, if you want to make a difference in somebody's life, you want to be used by God, you're going to have to fight the giants. And what we have discussed is, there are all kinds of different giants. There are giant diseases. Look at this. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. I just popped something. and Oh, Ricola. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. There, there are giant diseases. There are, there are giant uh, uh, job losses. Some of you guys in here, anybody in here lost a job in recent weeks? I see one, two, three, four. Five, six, that's a giant. You don't think that's a giant? 
That's called, that's called no cash flow. That's a giant. And you still got your bills? Of course that's a giant. So, so we're always facing these giants. And um, there, there, there are giant diseases. And Mark, who I just talked with, I, I forgot to pray for your wife, Misty, who's got cancer. But uh, we'll, we'll try to remember that, all right? I'm sorry about that. That's a giant when, it, when, a, when there's disease. There are all these different giants that we're fighting throughout life. Um, that's what we've been studying. But if you're going to be used by God, you're going to fight giants. You're going to encounter giants. Now, I want to ask you something. If you, we've been in this for, what, four or five weeks now? What do you think is the biggest giant of them all? I, I'd be interested in your feedback. Pride? That's very good. That's very good. Somebody else? What else? I heard another one. Fear? I heard doubt. Those are excellent. Those are huge Giants. You realize in the scripture over 200 times it says fear not? Why does it say it over 200 times? Because we tend to fear. Doubt is another one. These are excellent. Give me some more. Ego. Ego is huge. Ego is self. I heard another one. Guilt. Guilt, guilt will kill you. People take their lives because of guilt. Discouragement is another one. Discouragement may be Satan's most often utilized tool to, to uh, keep us from being effective for the Lord. You, you just, the, discouragement. It, it's, it's like uh, th that term, what does that term mean? You lose your courage. You ever thought of it that way? When you get discouraged, so we get down, we get it down. Yeah, but really what's happening is you've lost your courage to keep going. So someone needs to put courage in. These, these are good. I tell you, there's one in every crowd, isn't there? What? I, I heard another one. Worry. I heard worry. Yes, sir. Lonely, loneliness is huge. Jealousy. Yeah, these are all great. These are all excellent. They're all wrong. These are all wrong. These are all giants. That's huge. Lust, you're still wrong. These are all giants. Can I tell you what the greatest giant of them all is? The greatest giant is God. You see, God enables us to fight the other giants. All these ones you've mentioned that are excellent. Started with pride, we went to fear, we went to doubt, we got... Uh, discouragement, we got worry, we got anxiety, we got guilt, we got jealousy, we got loneliness, we got doubt, we got all these different giants. Well, and all these giants will hit us in different ways, from different angles, at different times in our life, because we're on a journey, we're on a path, we're walking with the Lord, and, and, and what happens is, all of these things, when they hit us, and when we encounter them, you, you see, they, they intimidate us, that we, we don't know how to handle them, we don't know how to, and, and they come and they, they come in, in different sizes, and they come in different intensities. And, I mean, you can have anxiety, but there must be 40 different levels to anxiety. I mean, there's low-grade anxiety, and then there's high-impact anxiety, depending on where you are in life. And when you're out of work, what would be a low-impact anxiety suddenly is a high-impact anxiety just because you're out of work. You see how it works. Thanks, Lou. You see how all this works. But, but God is the giant that trumps every other giant. And see, that's the basis of our faith. We believe certain things. And it all begins with who our God is. That's, that's why in Ephesians 6, it says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might to have victory or to have success. Yet what happened is, as you look back over your life, God worked in your life and enabled that giant to be defeated. Because God trumps every giant. God works. God works when it looks like there is no way. Well, God will make a way. See, it begins with God and who God is. Uh, we have been basing this study primarily uh, on Joshua and on Caleb because they were 
the two guys out of the 12 guys who went into the land on a reconnaissance mission in Numbers 13, they were there 40 days, came back, reported to Moses and Aaron and all the people about the land they were going into. And one of the things they said, and I know this is starting to sound like a broken record, is, hey, it's a wonderful land, it's a prosperous land that we're going into, you know, it's, it's wonderful. But there were giants in the land, and yes, there were giants in the land, a little racial giants, and 10 of the 12 guys said, yeah, our problem is, though, we are not able. We, we can't take these guys. Joshua and Caleb said, we can take them. Why did Joshua and Caleb think that they could handle those giants? Because their focus was on God and not the giants. God trumps every giant. God is the ultimate giant. So, tonight, I want to go to Daniel chapter 2. Why do I want to go to Daniel chapter 2? Well, because tonight we want to back up a little bit and just talk about our giant God. We, we, we want to do a little homework. We want to get a little perspective. We, we, need, uh, we need to refresh your course on, on our God and, and who he is. Uh, Daniel... We're going to go to Daniel chapter 2, but Daniel's story is an interesting story because you see what's happened to Daniel is that Daniel is living in a foreign land. He no longer is living in Judah. Why is he no longer living in Judah? Why is he now living in Babylon? Uh, why, if you look at Daniel chapter 1, uh, uh, he and his buddies were taken to Babylon. And now they are dealing with a foreign culture. They're dealing with a foreign language. They're dealing with uh, uh, foreign values. They're, they're not comfortable. They're in a completely different culture. Their lives have been turned upside down. Why? Well, because their land was conquered. Well, what was their land? Judah. Uh, the Israel of the Old Testament. Israel, as we know of in the Old Testament, you had, uh, at a certain point, the nation split into two. You had Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Here's what happened to Israel, and, and, and if you know anything about their history, um, Israel was chosen by God to know God. They were chosen to be the covenant people. They were chosen to be the apple of his eye. And so he gave them the law. He gave them the prophets. He gave them the truth. He gave them the promise of a coming Messiah that if they would trust in, their sins would be forgiven. And that was typified by the sacrificial system and all those lambs that were slaughtered was really a picture of the coming lamb who would take away the sin of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Israel was this little, tiny, insignificant nation, and God chose to reveal himself to Israel. So they had the truth about God. All of the other nations were worshiping false gods. Israel had the truth. What did they do with the truth? They rejected the truth. They absolutely rejected the truth. And, and it was a series, if you read the Old Testament history books, it's a series of these different kings, and several years ago we did a series in here on, on uh, living, uh, what, what do we call that? Uh, uh, it was about the kings. I can't remember what we called it. Uh, it was about the dead kings. Uh, why did we study these guys? Well, we studied their lives. Because those kings were the leaders of the nation. You're the leader of your home. And every home is a small civilization. Every home is a small nation. And as the king goes, so goes the home. As the king goes, so goes the family. As the husband goes, as the father goes, so goes the home. So you see, your leadership is important just as their leadership was important. The problem with most of these kings, the vast majority of them was, they knew God was there. When it was their turn to be inaugurated and to be put on the throne, according to Deuteronomy 17, they had to take a copy of the Word of God and they had to write it out longhand. And then they were to read it all the days of their life. So they knew the truth about God, but what did most of them do about it? They rejected it, and they lived in rebellion. So God would send the prophets, and he, they would speak, and, and these guys continued, continued, continued to disobey God. It went on for hundreds of years, and finally God took the northern kingdom into captivity. And then all that was left with the southern kingdom was Judah, and then after a long period of time, God took them into captivity, and when they went into captivity, Daniel and his buddies went into captivity. So his whole life was changed because God brought judgment on the nation because the nation refused to acknowledge the God upon whom their nation was founded and built upon. Okay. So now Daniel's in a foreign land. 
It's not an easy situation. And in Daniel 2, uh, the king, this guy's name is Nebuchadnezzar. You've heard of him. It says this, Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. In other words, I want to know, you know what this means. Now here's what's interesting. Usually a king will have a dream, and he will take all of his advisors and his you know, conjurers and satraps and whatever these guys are called. He'll tell them the dream, and then they interpret the dream. But, you know, this king's a little ticked off with these guys. He's a little hacked. He's paying them a lot of money. They're just a bunch of hanger-ons. They're, they're really not worth much. So, so what he does, verse 4, uh, you know, he told him he had a dream and he's troubled. And then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic in verse 4. O king, live forever. You always want to say that to a king. Tell the dream to your servants and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, the command for me is firm. If you, don't, if you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn from limb to limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. So this guy's kind of had it with these guys. And he says, hey, listen, here's the deal. If you guys really know your stuff, you go ahead and tell me what I dream." Excuse me? I'm not telling you the dream. What I want is for you to tell me what I dreamed and then tell me what it means. Well, they, they get a little panicky. Um, look at verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king, inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Kings don't do this. This is not the rule. You tell us the dream, and then we make something up and tell you this is what it means. <laughs> and he knows that, and he's sick and tired of this crud. He goes, no, I'll tell you what. You tell me the dream, or I'm going to tear you from limb to limb. Now, because of the favor of God on Daniel, and because he had convictions that he wouldn't compromise, Daniel is promoted. And so Daniel is among this uh, inside group of advisors. Notice um, verse 13. The decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment. We're going to need both of those in coming days. <laughs> Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. 17, he tells his friends about it. 18, they go and pray and ask God to give them the answer to this mystery so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men? Verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. You know what happened? God told him. Here's what the king dreamed. And here's the interpretation. Now, if you were Daniel, would you be grateful? I'd say you'd be grateful. And so what he does is he prays a prayer of thanksgiving to God. Now, this prayer is, is solid. This is a prayer. I, I want you to see what he says here. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. Now, do you remember what we started with? God's the ultimate giant. God trumps every other giant. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, this says, this says, for wisdom and power belong to him. I got a question for you. How much wisdom does God have? He's got all wisdom. Okay? All the wisdom there is, God has. All right, here's another question for you. Because this says, 
for, for wisdom and power belong to him. How much power does God have? God has all power. So the Bible says, is anything too hard for the Lord? You know, you know another way of putting that? Is any giant too hard for the Lord? No. No. So here, here's our God. Catch this. Who's our God? Be strong in the Lord. Okay, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might. All right, how do I do that? You know how you do that? By thinking. By thinking about who he is. Who is my God? Well, wisdom and power belong to him. How much wisdom? All wisdom belongs to my God. So you know what that means? When events happen in my life that I don't get, and when I pray for something to happen and it doesn't happen, and I see the short-term ramifications, and I see the long-term ramifications, and I go to bed depressed, and I wake up depressed because I'm concerned, and I see things going to hell in a handbasket, what is your only hope? Your only hope is God. And your only hope is that God who has all wisdom. Now, you know, it's wonderful to have all wisdom, but if you don't have all power, that wisdom is worthless. Correct? If you don't have the power to pull off what your wisdom dictates is best, well, that's not much of a God. But see, God has all wisdom, but he also has all power. Therefore, the plan which God has instituted from before the foundations of the world, his plan is going to be pulled off. It's the best plan because of his wisdom, and his power is going to keep the plan on track even when it looks detrimental to our desires and our wishes. You getting this? Yeah, you are. You got to start with God. Watch this, 21. It is he who changes the times and the epics. There are chapters in history, are there not? History is his story. You look at the 20th century. Uh, you can break it up in the sections. You can break it up in the chapters. Uh, there used to be a group of Christians called post-millennialist, and they were huge. And the reason they were huge is that they were convinced that things were going to get better and better and better. They were really strong. They were extremely strong in the early 1900s because their belief that was the church was going to infiltrate, infiltrate the culture and make things better and better and better and better and usher in the return of Christ. And then World War I broke out. And the uh, attendance at the post-millennial meetings tended to drop because suddenly things were getting better and better. But then they got through World War I and they thought, okay, well, okay, and then World War, oh, then there was a depression and then World War II. God is in charge of history. He is in charge. Uh, he is the one who changes the times and the epics. So when there was a shift in history, when there was a shift in a nation, who has brought about the shift? Somebody help me here. God, and he's done it, catch this, with all wisdom and with all power. And I don't like it. <laughs> Sometimes. So right now, we got, a, we got half the people are happy and half the people are sad. If you're in the sad category, or if you're in the happy category, let, let me, let, hey, if you're in the happy category, you better brace up to be disappointed. And if you're in the sad category, uh, you need to have your perspective altered and view this thing not from the lens of your life and just what you see, but from a God who has all wisdom and controls the seasons and the epics. And if that doesn't help you, read the next verse. He, who is he? It's God. He removes kings and establishes kings. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, it's voter fraud. Oh, well, there may have been. 
That's all, that's all true, whatever it was you said. That's probably all true. But ultimately, who is working his plan? God. And, 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 and once again, he's not only working his plan, but he's doing it. He's doing it with all wisdom. It is the best possible plan for his glory and for his purposes. And that includes his people, those of us who know him. It just doesn't look like it to us. <coughs> right? Does this help? Does this give a little perspective? I talked to someone at 8.15 this morning. He said, I'm just giving you a call because I'm depressed. I said, call Chuck. <laughs> Don't call me. He said, what are you thinking? I said, I'm thinking Daniel 2. That's what I'm thinking this morning. Daniel 2. That's where I'm spending my time. Um, you know, there have been those who have studied history in depth and detail, and they have noticed, and we've talked about this in here before, uh, there was such a thing when you study history as the rise and fall of great nations. And, and different historians have, have looked at this. Uh, Toynbee looked at it. Uh, there have been a number of them. Um, someone sent me an email today, and I had seen this before, but I had forgotten about Alexander Tyler. I'll just read this. About the time of our original 13 states, about the time our original 13 states adopted their new constitution, uh, Alexander Tyler, a Scottish history professor at the University of Edinburgh, had this to say about the fall of the Athenian Republic some 2,000 years earlier, and I quote. Uh, Tyler said as he studied them, he said, a democracy is always temporary in nature. It cannot simply exist as a permanent form of government. And then he says, a democracy will continue to exist up until the time that voters discover they can vote themselves generous gifts from the public treasury. Now, this is a study of Athens. He continues, from that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates who promise the most benefits from the public treasury. This was written in 1787. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates who promise the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that every democracy will finally collapse due to loose fiscal policy, which is always followed by a dictatorship. The average age of the world's greatest civilizations from the beginning of history has been about 200 years. During those 200 years, those nations always progress through the following sequence. Number one, from bondage to spiritual faith. Number two, from spiritual faith to great courage. Number three, from courage to liberty. Number four, from liberty to abundance. Number five, from abundance to complacency. Number six, from complacency to apathy. Number seven, from apathy to dependence. Number eight, from dependence back into bondage. This guy wrote this in 1787 as a result of studying the Athenian democracy. Hegel said that history teaches us that men never learn from history. Well, let us learn from history. When we did the retreat a few weeks ago, I quoted Francis Schaeffer. And uh, Francis Schaeffer was, we need to see Roger, uh, is it Darwin? Darwin? If you go to the children's ministry. Roger, if you're in here, that'd be great. And they found him. Thanks, Roger. Uh, huh? Well, I'm sorry? It's a 30? Okay. All right. Thanks, Lou. All right. Did you get that cheeseburger yet for me? I, I mean, while we're talking, let's just clear that up. I'm kidding around. All right. See, that contact is starting to affect me. All right. You see, uh, this is fascinating stuff to me. Um, and it is to you. 
I, I was talking at the retreat. Um, I referred to Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer was uh, a great Christian thinker. Uh, he died, what, 20 years ago now? But uh, Schaefer was a Presbyterian pastor. Um, after World War II, he was asked, they, they, the conservative Presbyterians had extensive uh, missionary work in Europe, and they asked him after World War II to go over there and just to see what the condition of the churches were and what was happening, what the needs were. And, and so he was over there and then came back and gave his report. And one of the things he said is that, well, obviously there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of brokenness and there's a lot of pain. There's a huge problem with uh, orphaned children because of the war and because of the bombing. And, but he said the other thing, the churches are not doing well because liberalism has found its way into the churches. And the word of God is not believed, and the word of God is not authoritative, and God's name is not honored. And, and so he gave this report, and he said, we need, to send, we need to send someone over there to establish a work, and maybe the first thing to do is to do a work among the children and then take it from there. And they said, we think you're the man. And he had a very prominent church in St. Louis, and so uh, Francis Schaefer and his wife Edith picked up, I believe they had four kids, and they they moved to Europe, and the whole thing was a catastrophe. Uh, whatever they tried to do didn't work, and they headquartered in, in Switzerland, but in Switzerland, um, in this particular canton, I think they call it, it's like a county, they were not welcome, and um, it was a very difficult time, and their daughter got very, very sick, and their little boy got polio, and it was just, they were living in rented quarters. It was just, it was just a horrific time. And uh, it was so difficult for Schaefer, he had to rethink his entire Christian faith. He, he was pretty much devastated by what he saw happening after the war and what he saw going on in his family and his disappointment with, with his ministry and nothing was happening and it seemed like God was against him. And they had this little rented chalet. And what Schaefer would do is that he would, hike in the mountains and he went back to first causes and he asked himself why do I believe what I believe why am I a Christian and this went on for a couple of years and he rethought his entire faith in light of all of the European skepticism and higher criticism and anyway well things were coming to an end and it looked like they were going to be thrown out of the country and there was tremendous pressure on them. Economically, the kids are sick. Little boy has polio. Their daughter was going to a private school in Geneva, and she would leave Monday and come back Friday. And uh, her first week at school, she called, and she said, uh, Mom, can I bring two girls home with me? Um, one's from Indonesia, I think, and one's from China. I can't remember. You know, girls from international countries. And Edith almost said no because there was so much stress in the home and so much pressure. And she said, okay, well, just bring them, just bring them. Well, what happened was she brought those girls home. And they were having dinner, and after dinner, they began to talk and, you know, get acquainted. And, and one of the girls said to Francis Schaefer, I understand that you're a pastor. And he said, yes. And she said, well, I've never understood why this would be so of God why this would be true about God. Well, Schaefer had just spent two years thinking about that in his own personal crisis, and he gave her his response, and she said, I've never heard anything like that in my life. And then she asked him another question, and then the other girl, and they were up most of the night. He was answering these girls' questions. Yeah, they, they go back to school. The next week, his daughter calls, and he said, I've got five friends that heard about Dad's conversation. Can these girls come too? And they're thinking, oh, my gosh. Okay, bring them. That was the beginning of something called Labrie Fellowship. You know what Labrie Fellowship did in the 60s especially? How many of you guys are familiar with Labrie Fellowship and Schaefer? Schaefer changed, his, he changed the generation. He was called the apostle to the intellectual. I remember the first time I heard about him. It was in 1968. But what he, they had this little chalet up in a little obscure town in Waymo, Switzerland, and kids from all over the world would come and talk to Schaefer and listen to it. And he didn't want to promote himself, and he would give these little lectures, you know, maybe 30 kids in there. 
And they said, we want to tape it, and he wouldn't allow taping. And then one night, his daughter talked to a friend, and they rigged up a microphone and put it in a plant. And he didn't know it was there, and they began taping him. And then those tapes were duplicated, and they went all over the world. Isn't that interesting? Schaefer changed a generation. His books changed a generation. You know what Francis Schaefer said just shortly before he died? And I heard him say this. Francis Schaefer said that he believed that America would eventually end up in a dictatorship. And we're all sitting, this is, this is in the 70s. We're going, what? This is America. He said, I don't know if it'll come from the left or from the right. But he said, I believe that there will be some time of great crisis, some type of great crisis, and there will be a great panic. And what will happen is the panic and the crisis is so great that Americans will give up their liberties and they'll give up their freedoms if they can be promised two things. Number one, personal peace, and secondly, affluence. Because they will have lost their moral foundation. And the only thing that matters to them, personal peace and affluence. You guarantee those to me, I'll give up my freedoms. Uh, these are times, gentlemen, when we need to be thinking correctly about God. Would you agree? Because if you're not thinking correctly about God, you're going to have a hard time sleeping at night. Because there are changes that are happening. We are going down a course we've never been before. And if you think and view your life through the grid of Scripture you have an understanding that we are on a path. And it's a path that's a different path than where we've come from. The Bible says how blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. We are quickly moving away from that. Uh, what we are witnessing is what Daniel witnessed in his own day as a young man. He witnessed the breakdown of a nation. <laughs> now, is it completely broken down yet? No. I, I think it's Toynbee who gave the five uh, cycles of the breakdown uh, of the rise and fall of great civilizations. The, the first one for Toynbee was initial beginnings. The second one was rapid growth and expansion. The third level was conservation of gains made. The fourth one is moral deterioration. And the fifth one is total collapse. Now, where are we? We're number four. We're, we're number four. Uh, I've been reading a book, a, a, a wonderful book. You asked me about a book? This is, worth a weight. this is worth its weight in gold. It's by David Wells. It's called The Courage to be Protestant. What does that mean? We're Protestants. Where does that term come from? It comes from when Martin Luther stood up against the Roman Catholic Church and protested that the word of God was not being teached and that justification of faith had been lost. So he protested when he pounded those theses into the door and said, this is what I believe from the word of God. Um, the courage to be Protestant. Uh, it, it's, I, I've been reading this over the last several days. And... Um, this is the fourth book that Wells has done. He is a brilliant biblical scholar who trained under Francis Schaeffer as a young man, went to Labrie, trained under Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, J.I. Packer. He's got an incredible pedigree. He knows the word of God. He is talking about the church and what's happening to the church in our culture. But he begins with culture and uh, he says some fascinating things here, and I'm just going to jump in. He, he talks about the fact that things are happening all over Western civilization. And when you say Western civilization, historically, you mean Christian civilization. He says these things are happening all over the West. It involves four fundamental changes. And this explains where we are. The first, the first is the change from virtues to values. The second is the change from character to personality. The third is the change from nature to self. And the fourth is the change from guilt to shame. Now, what does he mean by that? 
Um, well, I'll quickly hit guilt and shame. The Bible says we're guilty before God. But in our psychological babble speak, what we hear in a lot of churches today is not guilt, we hear shame. Shame is something that happens horizontally. There's a secret in your life you don't want other people to know about because you'd be embarrassed about it. And if it comes out, you, you would be embarrassed and you'd be ashamed. That's where the emphasis is in America and in many churches in this day and age. But the emphasis in the Bible is not on shame, it's on guilt. Guilt means I am guilty before God because of my sin. But see, a lot of churches don't talk about guilt. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's, let's back up. Let, let me read a couple clips. You guys got a minute I can read this to you? I mean, where are you going to go? Okay. He says, the shift from virtues to values. Much of this election was about what? Values. All right, listen to what he has to say. The shift from virtues to values may not be as apparent as it should be because of our language. For we use these two words interchangeably. We sometimes speak of moral values and have in mind what I have in view here by virtues. Let me clarify. Virtues, as I am thinking of them here, are aspects of the good, capital G, or of virtue, God's moral law. They are the moral norms that are enduringly right for all people, in all places, in all times. It is true, of course, that there has been a debate about what these virtues are. But see, what we're talking about are the Ten Commandments. All people, all places, all times. That's where the virtues come from. Uh, he says, Scripture is more or less silence about virtue, but it clearly speaks of moral excellence and goodness in connection with the character of God. Okay. Uh, to speak of virtue, then, is to speak of the moral structure of the world that God has made. Rebellious though we are, we have not broken down this structure nor dislodge God from maintaining it. It stands there over against us, whether we recognize it or not. Uh, this is a moral world that we inhabit. Now watch this. Character is about the way this moral world becomes embedded in our nature. This does not mean that those who are honest, truthful, compassionate, and considerate are, for those reasons, providing a basis for their acceptance before God, because they are not. However, in the eyes of God, it is surely better to be honest than to be dishonest, to be truthful than to be a liar, to be compassionate than merciless, and considerate rather than thoughtless. And it is certainly better for societies when people behave morally than when immorality and what is unethical triumphs. That is why society has placed a premium on good character until relatively recently. Whatever else may be said about it, it is a, it is a society's means of self-defense. When a society loses character, they're going down. Indeed, in the 19th century, letters of recommendation were typically character references and were carried around by the recipients and read with satisfaction. Letters of this kind today, especially if they make unhappy observations on the person's character, might invite a lawsuit. Today, though, we are less interested in a potential employee's character than we are in his or her's competence. In a complex, highly competitive, technological, bottom-line-driven world, competence trumps character. Character is nice, but competence is profitable. That, at least, is what we think. Uh, the loss of moral character has become so large an issue in our nation that many business schools and medical schools have hurriedly had to reintroduce courses in ethics. Is that not interesting? Peter Drucker talks about teaching a course on ethics, and a young man asked him, um, what was, how, did he, how did he phrase this to Drucker? Uh, he, 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 uh, I just lost it. I totally lost it. He, 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 he said, he asked, he asked Drucker, he said, he said what, is, what is character? And Drucker said, in a nutshell, it's being trustworthy. And the young man said, that's important. With a question mark. That's important. Yes, it's important. If you want to be trusted, try being trustworthy. Um, he goes on and talks about values. This is the context in which virtues have been converted into values. Uh, what he's saying is, 
we used to have moral absolutes, but we've lost our moral absolutes. And when we lost moral absolutes, we lost virtues and began to talk about values. Listen to this. Values, as we speak of them today, are a relatively new idea. In 1928, the multi-volume Oxford English Dictionary, which had been under construction since 1882 and had accumulated the meaning of close to a half a million words, had no entry for the word values. Nobody used the term because what they used back then was virtue. Values is a word in later 20th century talk in the West. Uh, then he talks about the shift from character to personality, and I'll just read it. Yeah, listen to this. As the 20th century dawned, Warren Sussman involved, uh, observed in his book, Culture is History, the great change that was underway. The words that had peppered the advice manuals of an earlier generation, words that came out of a moral world were disappearing. The words that were disappearing were duty, golden deeds, morals, manners, honor, citizenship, and reputation. As the new century began, a different set of interests came into view. They were signaled by the prominence in the advice manuals of words like fascinating, stunning, attractive, glowing, masterful, creative, dominant, forceful. The words most common earlier had been the words of character. These new words were the words of personality. Character is not fascinating, glowing, or masterful. By the same token, personality is not dutiful, honorable, or full of golden deeds. Character is good or bad. Personality is attractive, forceful, or magnetic. The result of this shift is that today people engage in selling themselves. Personalities are marketable commodities, but character is not. People who pitch products on television are pitching their personalities, not their character. Image is reality. Impressions are as important as achievements. That's where we are. And it's just not in the world, it's in the church. Are you guys still with me? So do you see this in the world? You see it at all? A little bit maybe? Yeah, you see it? Hey, let me give you some bad news. It's in the church. Um, let me pull this together. One of the things Wills does, I've been reading this for three days. This guy's got me pumped. He talks about where we have come as the evangelical church. You know what evangelical means? Uh, evangelical comes from eongelion. It means, uh, it means good news. Uh, evangel is the gospel. An evangelist is someone who preaches the good news of Jesus. Right? When you preach the good news of Jesus, we'll see we have a God, and he gave us his word, which is completely trustworthy, um, we, we read his word and we find out that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have what? Sinned and come short of the glory of God. You see? And we need a savior and we need a redeemer. So Jesus came to the cross. Jesus, who was God, came to the cross and died for my sin. And when I trust in Christ alone for my salvation, I can have right relationship with God and have my sins forgiven. Now, that's, that, that's, that's evangelicalism. And that's what was taught in the 30s and 40s and 50s. And if you go back into the 20s, there was a, a liberal, there were a lot of liberal churches. And because there were liberal churches who didn't believe in God the Father and they didn't believe in sin and they didn't believe in the virgin birth, you had some evangelical Christians get together and they wrote a volume, some volumes called the Fundamentals. Fundamentals of what? Fundamentals of Christianity. We believe certain things. And that became the basis for evangelicalism. So when you'd go to a church in the 30s or 40s or 50s, uh, you'd go to church and you'd sing hymns. And those hymns had content in them about God. Did they not? Yes, they did. Did you understand all the words when you were a little kid? No, because some of it was old language. But, but, but we had content in our hymns. And then, then a, a man, a man would get up and preach the Bible, not a woman. A man would get up and preach for 40 or 45 minutes, and he would teach truth. That's what church was. Well, here's what happened. In the 70s and 80s, what happened is, is that a lot of guys in the church began to think, you know what? This is kind of dull. This isn't real. This is kind of old school. 
And, and, you know, we're just singing these hymns and we're just preaching the Bible. And you got these people out here that need the Lord. And so they started these things called seeker-sensitive churches. So the motive was good. The motive is we want people who are not Christians to come to church so that they can have their lives changed. Jesus said in John 8, 31, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And so they were concerned about people who didn't know the Lord and they didn't want them to feel uncomfortable in church. So what they started doing was their whole mode of uh, modus operandi was to become sensitive to the people who didn't know Christ. So they started building church buildings that didn't look like a church building. In fact, their model for reaching out was not the word of God. The model for reaching out was a business model and they became marketers. How do we, how do we market um, the sale? How do we market the goods to the unbeliever. Well, we got to become sensitive to what they want. So they'd build buildings that didn't look like churches. You'd walk in and there'd be no cross. And then they kept shifting it. Whatever the unbeliever needed to feel comfortable, they'd put it in. So you want coffee? Shoot, we'll put a drive through Starbucks in the middle of the sanctuary in the middle aisle. You can just drive in and get your... I mean, everything was... So, you know... In the church, you got entertainment, you got Las Vegas floor shows, you got strobe lights, whatever it takes, you got drama. Whatever. Are you guys following me? This is what happened in the 70s and 80s. And some of the original guys, they wanted to preach the gospel, and they did, but some of them got off, and you see, when you really are focused on the seeker, you don't want to offend the seeker, you want the seeker to come back. Well, if you want the seeker to come back, there's some stuff in this book that the seeker is not going to like. So what do you do? you start cutting back on what this book says because you want them to come back. But let me ask you something. If you start cutting back on what this book says, how can you help the seeker? Right? Because what's going to set them free? Jesus said, if you abide in my word, all of my word, not part of it, not the, edit, not the part you edit. If you abide in my word, then you shall know the truth. Uh, no, no, that's not what he said. If you abide in my word, then you are disciples of mine, truly. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall do what? Set you free. So these people are coming in. You want them to know Christ, and you give them coffee and floor shows and all this stuff. But if you don't give them the whole word of God, are they ever going to be set free? No. What if you don't tell them about sin? What if you don't tell them there's original sin? Do you know that 70% of people who describe themselves as evangelical Christians don't believe in original sin? Why is that? Because they haven't been taught the word of God. They've been spoon-fed, trying to make them feel good about themselves. So that's what happened in the 70s and 80s. But then there's a new group of guys that came along in the 90s, and these guys are called emergence. You go, what are they called? There are churches that are called emerging churches. You say, what's that? Well, these are guys that came along and they're young guys, and they look at the church. They look at the seeker-sensitive churches of the 70s and 80s, and they said, you guys are old school. And the seeker guy says, we're not old school, we're hip. You're not hip, you're 20 years old, man. You know, there are all these churches called emerging churches. And they have their own theology, and these guys are cutting edge, and they're huge. They have their leading advocates write articles every month in Christianity Today magazine. You know what the characteristic of, a, of, a, of an emergent church is? They're postmodern. Well, what does postmodern mean? Postmodern means they believe there is no absolute truth. And they're proud of it. They write books that they're postmodern. Somebody help me here. You're, you're a church, and one of your core values is that you're postmodern and you don't believe in absolute truth? Well, you just made an absolute, but the problem is, this is absolute truth. But see, when you listen to them, and when you hear them, and when you read what they say, you know what they do? All they're concerned, let me tell you what they're concerned about. They're concerned about people getting in touch with themselves, and they're concerned about people getting in touch with one another. That's what they're concerned about. Uh, uh, they're concerned about mood, mood, mood. So when you come to a, a seeker service, you don't have a pulpit. You don't have a guy standing up preaching the word of God. You, you got a table with a bar stool. And the guy comes out and he sits in the bar stool and he's got a Starbucks and you have a conversation. And you got candles and the lights are down low. And it's very, you want to be very connected. I mean, I've been in churches like this. I've seen them. 
Can I tell you something else? Several of the leading guys in this movement have a real problem with the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's somewhat startling. You say substitutionary atonement? Yeah, you know what that is? That's the gospel. That Jesus went to the cross in my place. Jesus went to the cross, and the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, which should have been poured out on me for my sin, but Jesus took the wrath of God. It was poured out on him. Jesus was my substitute, and Jesus atoned. Jesus paid for my sin, and two of the leading advocates of the emerging church movement call the substitutionary atonement cosmic child abuse. That's heresy. That's heresy. So imagine, imagine a situation where there, there, it's, it's dark, it's mood, you know, you get the mood. It's very hip, helps you understand. Salvation doesn't come through belief in Christ, it comes through being connected. Because there's not sin, there's shame, and you gotta get over your shame. No, you gotta get over your sin because you're guilty and you need to be put in right relationship and trust Christ. But see, they're very low-key and they're very uncertain. See, when you talk to them, they're not certain about anything because they don't believe in absolute truth. This stuff's sweeping the country. So I see a guy sitting on Sunday morning on a, on a stool, and he's got a table, and he's got a Bible, and he's got a Starbucks, and he's talking very conversationally, and we're just having, I want to kick that sucker in the <laughs> butt and say, Get out of that chair and stand up and preach the gospel. Proclaim what Jesus did and who he is. Either that or sit down and shut up. And I say that, of course, in Christian love. <laughs> that's where we are as a culture. So, guy, that's where we are as a church. That's where we are as a church. So, you say, Steve, why are you going into all this? Because... You see what's happened to the evangelical church? We keep dumbing it down. And what happens when there's crisis and what happens when there's a change in a nation and in the epic? <sighs> Let me say this. If you don't know who God is, you're in deep yogurt. If God isn't there, if God isn't real, if God hasn't spoken, you have no hope. But see, hey guys, can I give you hope tonight? Can I give you some hope? And I know a lot of you are struggling right now. Let me give you some hope. Our God has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. He sets up kings, and he puts them down in all wisdom and in all power. And if you belong to him, let me tell you something, you don't have to be afraid. And you don't have to worry because he has saved you. He has redeemed you. You're going to heaven. And until you get to heaven, he's going to sustain you. He's going to provide for you. He's going to make a way for you. But you better not be screwing around with sin because he'll withhold his blessing from you. You need to get it right with him. You need to open up your whole heart to him and make him Lord of your life. This is the gospel. We, we embrace Christ, and then we follow Christ. And we don't get it all when we first begin with him, but as you get mature and older in Christ, you understand he's got to be Lord of every area of my life. Is this making sense? So let's trust him, and let's follow him, and let's know that he is wise and that his will is being accomplished and being achieved. And that's going to help me sleep, and that's going to help me rest. He's in absolute control. He's in absolute charge. And everything is fine. Is it not? Yes, it is. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for who you are. Thank you for the truth. I thank you for churches that are still teaching the word of God unashamedly. Help us, Lord, never to depart from this book. And I pray for those who may be here who have never asked you, Lord Jesus, to come into their lives. I pray that as the Spirit of God convicts them of sin, that they have fallen short, as we all have, that they might reach out to you and say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I need you. I believe you're God. I believe you're the Master. I believe you're the Savior.
And I ask you to save me from my sin and come into my life. And you will do that. And Lord, for those of us who, are, who have known you for a while through your grace, help us to live off the promises and not forget what a great God you are. Help us to be strong in you and in the strength of your might. Help us to think about that tonight before we go to sleep. It'll help us to rest well. In your name we pray. Amen.